Hey, everybody. I'm Tom Haverstrow. Welcome to the Haverstrow Podcast. As always, with Amin, who is going to join us here in a few minutes. And we have a very special guest today, my friend, someone that I hold very dear to my heart, someone who uh, we, we became friends a few years ago after a shared personal battle with ALS. A parent of ours had ALS. We're kind of in the same NBA media orbit yeah. at ESPN and all that. And then suddenly we were partners in this thing. You have an amazing book coming out that I have read called All the Colors came out and I read it a few weeks ago and then I think we ate a pepper together on Levitard's show. <laughs> I ate a habanero and Kate, you ate, what was it? The actual pepper that you ate on Levitard? I did the research after I ate the pepper, which was my first mistake. <laughs> but I think it was like called a Red Seville, S-E-V-I-L-L-E. At first I thought I was kind of being an asshole to you by saying my pepper was spicier and I was just doing it for effect. But in retrospect, I genuinely think my, my pepper was spicier. And are you fully recovered from that? Not emotionally, <laughs> not emotionally, not mentally. It is on par with the most pain I've ever felt in my life. Mine is a habanero as well. Uh, people are like, Oh, jalapenos are hot, but jalapenos, are not nearly as hot as this. this is 40 times hotter than a jalapeno. So and this is, I think, 55 times hotter than a jalapeno is what <laughs> yeah. is what I think. Yo, Kate's is yeah. definitely way hotter. I don't like that I'm seeing about two minutes into my future here. <laughs> yeah. Is, I would totally that's oh, cruel. Now you're now you're not so much talking shit anymore, Kate, about how hot right? your pepper is, huh? Mm. Well, and mine is 32% hotter than your pepper. So I feel a little intoxicated. Yeah. I don't know, Tom, if you're getting that a little it's, bit. I uh, um, definitely don't know what's going on right now. <laughs> um, I don't like, know. There's, a, there's video. I'm, I'm hearing like Mega Man music in my head, yeah, and yeah. I don't know if that's like real NBA or GM if I'm, I'm hallucinating. If I weren't on this, I would curl up. I, I would curl up in a ball. So... Tom? Or do yoga. I would do yoga, maybe. <laughs> Kate, are you getting like a burn burns. in your esophagus right now? It burns right here, right above John Starks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've got a little PTSD from our pepper eating. And you're a professional basketball player, former professional basketball player, and nothing compares really to eating that vegetable. No, Tom, I, my appendix ruptured my junior year of high school, and it ruptured in the middle of the night, and my parents had to take me to the ER. and the pain I felt 40 minutes after eating this pepper rivaled that pain. <laughs> and what, what would you say painfully? Uh, what You just did a recent Levitard hit where you were looking at Greg Cody, the Miami Herald sports columnist, legend in South Florida. You were able to show off your shoes and then also get to see Greg Cody's feet. So pain, pain levels, where does that rank in terms of eating a pepper and seeing Greg's feet? I mean, that, it was, that was also disturbing. Both of them were really disturbing incidences. Um, they were painful in different ways. I'm telling you, Tom, people in my life, when they see anything about peppers now, they look at me and they probably do this to you too. They look at me and they just have just deep levels of sympathy when we talk about peppers because I thought it was going to be a stunt and I thought I was going to have to perform for the cameras, but you really don't have to perform for the cameras. 
there's no theater about this. There's just a physical reaction. There's no acting. You're not playing it up that your insides are inferno, an inferno, and your throat, and you're sweating. And my big thing, so uh, for those who don't know, I, I started an ALS pepper challenge a few years ago in honor of my mom who had been diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease. And um, and the same the same disease hit your father at the, around the same time. And I kind of feel like, you know, I've had a jalapeno before. And that's like super hot. A jalapeno is something like 40 times hotter, which might be a fake stat. A, a habanero is 40 times hotter than a, than a jalapeno. And what you did, I think, was like levels even above higher than that. Unknowingly, I consumed a pepper that is like levels below the Carolina Reaper, but something like 800 <laughs> times hotter than a jalapeno. And Tom, I know we, as we've talked, I feel like we now over the last couple of years have been we've become experts in pepper eating somehow, but yes. when you say that it feels like your insides are burning, I know listeners could think that that's, that's just a turn of phrase. But after my experience, I did research and the ingredient that's in the pepper, I always forget how to say it, the cuspation. There's this word in this thing that's in a pepper. And what it does is it attaches itself to your pain receptors and makes them feel as if they're on fire. We got you. Oh, We're fire. Here. I'm on fire. Okay. Oh, All right, you're it. not on fire. I knew it. You're lying. Relax. I'm burned. I'm there on is fire. no fire. I'm on fire. Come back here. So when we say that I, I wanted to go to the ER and the pain level I felt, like it felt like someone had like lit a wildfire inside of my stomach. And... I don't take this lightly anymore. Like I, I know it's for charity. I know it's for a good cause, but anytime someone like floats the idea of eating a pepper again, I don't, I want to help, but I'm not sure that I want to feel that ever again. Caspatian, Caspatian, something like that. Maze is telling me it's capsaicin. There it is. That's the word I meant. Yeah, apparently um, Smokin' Ed Curry, who invented the Carolina Reaper, which is the hottest pepper in the world. Um, and he's based at Pucker Butt, like, pepper company in South Carolina, Fort Mill, South Carolina, which is just like 20 minutes outside of Charlotte, actually closer to me than to you in, in, in Charleston, where you're, where you live at. There's no heat. There's no actual heat in a pepper. It's just the perception of heat is that this capsaicin is, it makes your, it tricks your brain to thinking it feels like fire. It feels like heat. It's like a neuroreceptor thing. Yeah. There's no actual burning of the, the, you can't like if you eat like 10 Carolina Reapers, it does not burn a hole in your stomach or your esophagus. Like that doesn't happen. It's just the, the ingredients in this, and this is getting way in the weeds here, but I, um, I haven't done anything hotter than a habanero. And after seeing what you went through, I'm, I'm, I'm very nervous about it. I mean, I, I, I know that your listeners probably are like, enough of the pepper talk, but just two more minutes of pepper talk. I have really stayed up to date on the pepper community since my experience. And there's, there are guys out there who are eating hundreds of Carolina Reapers in one sitting. Like they're just going through bowls of Carolina Reapers. And are like, these like monks that they don't feel pain? Right. Have they reached a meditative... We're sorry. The number you have dialed is not in service at this time. All right. So our talk about hot peppers actually set off a fire alarm where you're at. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Everything okay where you're at, Kate? Everything is good. It was a false alarm, as they tend to be, and it wasn't three in the morning. So I'm going to chalk that up as a win. You had been looking in the pepper community? Yeah, I mean, I think that once you've gone through something 
like eating the pepper and you yeah. realize the physical effects, you want to understand the different levels and the physical effects that other people are going through. So I, there are people out there consuming the pepper that I wanted to go to the ER for people are eating a pepper six times hotter than that. And then eating 200 of that. Yeah. So that's like, I, I mean, obviously there's a level of immunity that you build up and your body starts to process them differently than I would probably process the first one, like anything, but still that's a level of pain that people are going through. I don't know for what, for some sort of, I mean, we're doing it for a good cause and to bring awareness to ALS. And there's just a lot of people out there eating these peppers just because it's a, they think it's a badass thing to do. I guess I would liken it to you feel alive, like your, your brain and you're feeling very much that synapses are firing like crazy. Yeah. And you're feeling very much alive. Like it's not like it's an experience, right? Uh, I, I guess, why do people go on roller coasters? It's frightening. Right, like it's terrifying. Like, why do you, why do you watch a horror film if it makes you scared? If it makes your heart race, kind of like uh, eating a hot pepper. Like, why do people put themselves through that kind of pain? Well, it's for a good cause. It's raising awareness for ALS, and uh, like the ice bucket challenge, I was like, hey, it's kind of fun to see people suffer online. <laughs> uh, it's kind of fun, um, and so it kind of caught a little bit of fire, no pun intended, to the situation you're dealing with over there, Kate. But. Um, and then you decided uh, with your father's fight uh, with ALS, you decided to write a book about it. And what's fascinating about this story is, is uh, I kind of felt like going into it, given that my mother is battling ALS right now, is that I would come away feeling pretty down about things, that it felt maybe like a downer, that this is a, a story about um, a battle with an unwinnable disease. There is no cure. There is no treatment for ALS. But what I came out of it was it was like an amazing basketball love story. And I think you mentioned before, and it's so perfect, is that your book is kind of like Tuesdays of Mori mixed with Hoop Dreams. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was perfect. That's, that's my elevator pitch for the book. Because I think exactly like you said, I think one of the things that ALS, the community of ALS struggles with is getting people to pay attention to the disease and try to work for the disease because it's one of those diseases that if you don't have it and it's not in your life, it can be so terrifying to think about and to see that unless you're forced to, you're like, well, I'm not going to wade into that territory. And so in writing this book and in thinking about how to communicate to people to pick up this book, it's like, I, I didn't want, I, and I didn't want to linger in the part of my dad's life that was defined by ALS because I knew that he didn't want to linger in the part of his life that was defined by ALS. So this is a book about, this is a book about my love for my dad. It's a love letter to my dad and the love that we shared was born on the court. And I think that's a story that so many kids who are now adults can relate to that a love that a parent had for a sport, whether it's a team or actually playing that sport, it's, it's a really deep foundation to get to know your parent and to get to know who you are and being able to go back and relive those days with my dad in the nineties and the game and how we really built our relationship around the game. Like that was a deep part of our love. And I, and I love being able to go back and resurrect that. Basketball does feel like a, a little bit like religion reading your book. Like there's, there's kind of like this, this, uh, I don't know, magical thing that happens when you step onto a basketball court. 
Um, and you talk about one of the chapters is the life lesson of always finding the nail. And mm-hmm. I had the same experience as you, Kate, is when I found out about the nail at the free throw line, it blew yeah. my mind. Yep. And even to this day, uh, every time I outdoor court, indoor court, because when you know when the nail at the free throw line, it's on every court that wants to be playing regulation basketball. Yes. So explain explain to the people listening what the nail is at the at, on basketball courts. Yeah. So you know the nail or the notch. It's the it's a tiny little pockmark in the middle of the free throw line that is somebody has measured to the millimeter, the middle of the free throw line, and then also in line with the, the middle of the rim. Yes. I'd have to go back and do research or Tom, maybe, you know, the answer to this. I assume it was put there. I assume it was put there for free throw shooters, but it was probably put there for the actual people like paving and putting down the wood on the court to be able to build out from that. I'm not sure which, what was the motivation for it, but like that, that notch exists on every court that's playing, you know, high school level games, college level games, international games. Yep. Yep. And my dad, my dad showed it to me when I was, you know, 10, 11, 12. And just like you, it became this really, this orienting piece of a court for me that I, that I loved going to find. It was like a stamp on the court and it reminded me of being centered somehow. And that was just one of the, like the many life lessons that your dad, not really explicitly saying this is a life lesson to you, Kate, but that you, in reflection of this disease and in reflection of your relationship with your father, that it turns out a lot of the applications of these lessons, like basketball things, like sometimes bake in your shot, bank in your shot. Mm -hmm. Like why, you know, like why, why do that? And then it kind of like, you think about it a little bit and it's like, sometimes you got to just like challenge yourself or do something a little bit extra that seems superfluous, but it actually expands your uh, your horizons a little bit. And I just thought it was a, uh, an amazingly delightful book about love and about, uh, your father, what a character, the, the fact that he played all over Europe and like you traveled with him a lot of times we talked about it today earlier is that how you, you had little home videos of yourself speaking fluent French mm-hmm. and like, that's because of your dad. And I think so many, so many people who grew up with sports as, like the the centerpiece somehow, or or like a foundational piece of their life. Certainly, the things I'm writing about are very specific to my experience with my dad. You know, I we always went to Stewart's shops, and these are in the Northeast, right? So maybe Stewart's wasn't the place you went, but I feel like anybody who grew up in like the '80s, '90s, early 2000s, like remembers that moment of going to the convenience store after playing in the summer. And just housing like a 32 ounce Riptide Rush Gatorade. Yep. These are the cornerstones of, of growing up and of like learning and becoming who you are. And all of those were shared through the game. And they, these are things that I hadn't even thought about over the last 15 to 20 years. Cause you know, your, your life takes turns and you start caring about different things and the way the New York Knicks used to be the, the team around which I built my entire days. Like, you know, I hadn't watched the game in years, but going back and remembering the importance of these things and how, when I thought about it, these things were more important than just nostalgia, although that is so important. They also shape how I see the world today. And, you know, whether it's like things my dad would say about like making the last dribble the hardest, like those things are relevant outside of a pull-up jumper. 
the feeling, like going back and remembering the feeling of walking into an empty gym. Like I have, I can't feel that way again. Mm-hmm. The same way I felt it when I was 14 in the same way that Christmas is never going to feel the same to you. Maybe unless you have a kid as it did when you were eight or nine. And so I think that that love and nostalgia it only exists in me because my dad showed it to me. And that is, that is a beautiful, that is a beautiful gift. And I'm one that I hope that anyone who reads this book, like they see some part of their childhood or their love for their parent in, in the love I had for my dad. What was the hardest thing to write about? Like that the words were just, it was a struggle to get the words in your head down to, to, to the keyboard and onto the paper. Like I'd imagine some things just flow and then other parts of the book, I don't know whether it was like the end stages of things were harder to write about, or maybe that was easier to write about because it was fresher. It was, it was more profound. Um, but what was the hardest thing for you to uh, actually get written down? I think the hardest thing to put into words is this split between how you feel when you're living in the land of the sick versus how you feel when you're living in whatever normal life, the land of the healthy. And I think there's a really great memoir that came out a couple months ago called Between Two Kingdoms. And it's a phrase I think taken from Susan Sontag, who was a writer back, you know, who flourished back in like the sixties and seventies. And it's this idea that there are two kingdoms in our, in our world. And it's like, sometimes you enter the kingdom of the sick and it's like you are separated from the kingdom of health. And these are very two different experiences when you're living your life. And even though I wasn't the one that was sick with someone going through a disease like ALS and trying to be by their side, you you are tethered to them in some ways at, at points and you can't help feeling like you're separated from the outside world. But like finding the language to articulate what that feels like mm. It, that was really hard to find that specific language. Like remembering these these days of of pickup on the blacktop and outside, like those were so like green grass in my mind. You can still smell it in the air. Yes. And like, the, you know, everything I talk about, like the nostalgia of the 90s and John Starks and Gatorade, like these things are just so pure and beautiful in my mind, but it was hard to figure out like, and Tom, you, you know this because of what you've been going through with your mom like there are these weird feelings that come up when you're dealing with a loved one who is in like the kingdom of the sick, because it's like, there's, there's guilt about how you feel. There's um, sometimes it can feel like a performance, right? The sadness you feel like you don't know how people are perceiving it. And these were emotions that I hadn't had to deal with until my dad got sick and I hadn't written about them. Right. There was nothing in my ESPN history that gave me the understanding or the foundation to understand these feelings. So I I struggled with how to convey some new thought, not new, but to write it in some different way. And I think this was also happening at a time where in your career, you're giving everything of every inch of your body into your career. And there's a lot of just exposition about that experience for you is that it, not only at this time of your father was getting sick, but you also were trying to juggle your career and, you had such a close bond with your father. And I think anyone who has thrown their life into a job or thrown their life into a career and trying to, in your 30s, get to the mountaintop of, of whatever profession it is, and then you kind of lose sight of that grounding, that, that um, you know, 
the the March Madness stories that you talked about with your dad, um, and how sometimes it would be like, yeah, dad, we'll fill out a bracket, we'll we'll watch together one day. But then you realize, like, wait, why aren't I holding on to those things more? I'm I'm so busy now in my life, and I thought that was really vulnerable and refreshing to read. Is that sometimes that I watch you on Sports Center, I watch you on Outside the Lines, or I watch you on Around the Horn, and you do an amazing job. But there's also this other thing that happens off camera, which is like even though you're throwing your life into being the best on TV or journalist, there is this other side of you that um, you kind of lose a little bit of grip. And I thought that was, um, I thought that was really beautiful that you wrote about. Thanks. Um, because I, in much of this book is a leap of faith. And I think we, we, we take those, maybe we're giving ourselves too much credit by saying a leap of faith, but as a journalist and a writer of any kind, you have to, at some point, just believe that your personal experience, as nuanced and singular as it can feel, is being felt if you share it to some degree by like large swaths of the population. And you've probably experienced this at various points when you write about something and you're like, I don't know if this is going to translate. This is just a thing I've been thinking. And then all of a sudden, it can be something small and hysterical like that, you know, like we do on the Levitard show all the time about how you feel about a milkshake, right? You're like, oh my God, other people have thought this thing too. And then it feels this connectedness to humanity. And on the big stuff, like becoming obsessed with a career. And, and for me, that's what it was, an obsession with success and achievement in this career path. But it can look like whatever distraction it is for you that's getting you away from the people you love and connectedness and all of the things that we know it's, it's so cliche. Like we all know, I'm not like saying anything new to be like, to say on this podcast, like, yes, the connection to my dad was something I should have fostered and that I shouldn't have let go. And yet I don't think it's a singular experience to me that I failed in that regard because I got distracted and because I told myself that I would always have time for it. And that was the lesson I learned throughout his illness. And the one I'm trying to share in the book is that those feelings you have when you say no to connecting with somebody, or, and a lot of times it can be around our family of origin and our nuclear family, like the little, the little voice in your head that's like, that's saying to you, I don't know if your priorities are straight on this, ignore it at your own peril. <laughs> because... I was lucky enough to have a runway to fix the mistakes I made. I was lucky enough to have time and a big flashing light of an ALS diagnosis to circle back around and say, wow, I made choices along the way that I wish I'd made differently, but I'm coming back around and thank you for this opportunity to say the things to you and be present for you in a way that I wanted to be, but I didn't live my life that way. Mm -hmm. And that was, a, that was the, like, this book is not, this book is not, oh, woe is our family. This book is gratitude for the dad I was given and the love we shared and the opportunity I had to bring all of that full circle. I don't think many people get that chance. And I realized when I say get that chance, I mean all of that, right? A wonderful dad to begin with. <laughs> And then the opportunity to circle back around, because no one's going to do it perfectly, but then the opportunity to circle back around and make sure he knew that I knew he was wonderful. That's the gift of a lifetime. 
Did you feel like if you weren't good at any good at basketball that you'd have the same relationship with your dad? Absolutely. Yeah, that's cool. Because my sister, you know, I mean, she became great at running. So, I mean, it's, you know, it wasn't basketball because her hand-eye coordination was subpar. Um, I, I mean, I can just remember still because basketball is a family sport. So she tried to play it, you know, and she's like a gangly middle schooler. You try and pass her the ball. And she was one of those kids who were like, it would go straight through her hands and into her stomach. You just like could That's not. That's Joel Anthony, former uh, center for the Miami Heat, who won it. Yes. <laughs> there are NBA players who that's actually like too. Yes. But um, she wasn't great. You know, she could not have excelled at basketball and she excelled at running. He didn't, he didn't care about that stuff. He really loved sharing the things he loved. And if it hadn't been basketball for me, I'm sure it would have been Springsteen, right? Like he just, he just loved spending time with us. And that, I, 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 I love the moments in my life when I realize the ways I've been lucky that I never called, that I never thought I was lucky. And having an awesome dad, sometimes I spent years of my life being annoyed at him because of his idiosyncrasies or frustrated that he, you know, he did this thing and that thing. And to be able to come to a place where you just, you start to realize how incredibly lucky you are that you had someone in your life who showed up and loved you. Yeah. That's beautiful. Did you know that you wanted to be a journalist um, that covered sports? Cause obviously you were an amazing basketball player uh, in college and played professionally, but did you know that like, I want to cover sports or did you kind of feel like maybe this was, I was good at sports, but I want to keep it in its own compartment and like leave that playing career behind. Or did you want to cover the game? I went through ups and downs with that because I, when I was 12, the Yukon Huskies went undefeated and this was the Rebecca Lobo, Jennifer Rosati team in 1994. Yeah. And they were on the cover of Sports Illustrated at the end of their run when they went 35 and 0 and won the NCAA tournament. And I remember that cover and I remember reading the story in that magazine. And it was one of those stories where the writer starts with an anecdote and then circles back around and closes the story by referencing the lead anecdote. And yep. yep. And it just blew my mind. And I ran downstairs to my mom and I was like, I'm going to do this. And so there was a part of me that always wanted to do sports journalism after basketball. But I did go through a period where I didn't want to be defined by basketball anymore. When when I was done playing in college and then a couple of years professionally, like I fell out of love with the game and I didn't, I didn't want, everything I did after basketball to brand me as an athlete, like, which was a weird thing now, now that I'm like 39, I just want people to think I'm an athlete again. Yeah. But yeah. at the time at like 23, all of my friends were going into assistant coaching and it felt like the easy next step. And I wanted to do something that felt like I'm a person outside of basketball. But I also saw that my, biggest strength was knowing the game and I really wanted to write. So I kind of circled back around on it and said to myself, well, you can't, you earned all of this credibility and this understanding in this area. Why not, 
why not continue to write and learn how to write, but do it in sports where you understand it maybe a little bit better than politics or any other genre of writing. So, Amin, this spring, as you get back outdoors to explore there in Phoenix, Mm -hmm. you can take Bespoke Post on all your adventures with a new lineup of essential Box of Awesome collections for guys guaranteed to upgrade your life. So I know which one I'm getting. What do you get? Is the bourbon collection, the Dram. It gives you not just bourbon supplies, like a book where you can read about the bourbon or any sort of syrups. You also get those amazing ice ball kits. Oh, those really cool. It looks like the Death Star. And instead of having like a regular ice cube or even those big fancy ice cubes, it's even fancier. It's like a perfect sphere. Right. And like you don't have to go out and like go shopping for any of this stuff. It already gives the kit for you. Yeah, I wouldn't even know where to get that stuff, to be honest with you. So that's pretty cool. What else comes in the kit? Happiness. You get the book. You get the syrup. You get the ice cubes but where are you gonna put that in in a glass you get the bourbon glass too whoa hold on they're giving me flatware too glassware i believe glassware stemware autowares if you are a camper or you're an outdoorsman but you don't want to go into a store and you don't even know what you're gonna buy go to bespoke it takes the best stuff every month no matter what you're into box of awesome has you covered from style and grooming goods to barware cooking tools and outdoor gear i mean you like taking your family out to go in a camping trip or something like that like you could probably use some of this stuff big camping guy huge camping guy but here's the thing tom i don't know where to start when it comes to what i need to go camping the camping spirit is in me but I just aren't prepared enough. I go to some of these camping stores and I get so confused. There's so much stuff. What do I need? What do I don't need? I need someone to simplify it for me and preferably just to send it right to my house so I don't have to get up and go to the mall or go somewhere where people are all infected with COVID. I need it to be neat and quick and precise and right to my house so that way you can go straight to the great outdoors. You want to have fun while you're shopping? Well, do it online. Get started by taking the quiz at boxofawesome.com. Your answers will help them pick the right box of awesome for you. They release new boxes every month across a ton of different categories. So even if you liked something last month, check it out again and there's going to be a brand new spanking lineup of box of awesomes, okay? So it's free to sign up and you can skip a month or cancel anytime. Each box costs only $45, but has over $70 worth of gear inside. So, I mean, here's what I want you to do. Get your 20% off your first monthly box when you sign up at boxofawesome.com and enter the code HABERSHOW at checkout. That's boxofawesome.com, promo code HABERSHOW, H-A-B as in boy, E-R-S-H-O-W for 20% off your first box. How excited are you to go camping, become a real outdoorsman with a box of awesome with your 20% off your first monthly box with the promo code Habershow. Like, how excited are you right now, Amit? I am head over heels, and I can't wait till the other boxes come in. The whiskey box, I see the ice balls, I see the simple syrup. The taco box, woo! I will eat the hell out of a taco box. Let me tell you right now, it's got one of those things. Mortar and pestle. That's a mortar and pestle. Yeah, there you go. You know exactly what I was talking about. All these delectable, delicious Sauces. The spoke. Y'all got my back. So you covered the Philadelphia 76ers in 2008 to 2011. <laughs> this was like pre, pre-processed Sixers. 
right? This, yeah, this was like this, the very end of my tenure there was like the implosion that led to the start of the process. Steven Adams has the arm extended. He brings it up through him. And they're chanting, trust the process in a nod <laughs> to Sam Hinkie. I think Doug Collins said that if I had to look at analytics every day, I will, I will blow, blow my brains out. And I was, I think I was, that was my first year on the, it might've been 2011 when he said that, um, somewhere in there. And I was like, wow, this guy does not seem like he's long for this, this NBA coaching in the, in the NBA. Like, yeah. it doesn't seem like this era is going to treat him very well. And I think he was out of there pretty soon after that. Yeah, he was, um, my, I went through, a, well, I went through a lot of head coaches. The Sixers went through a lot of head coaches when I was there. It started with Maurice Cheeks. Mo Cheeks, yeah. Mo yeah. Cheeks, who was awesome. And in fact, my first game covering the Sixers, it was an away game. And I had come from a tiny newspaper in upstate New York. Like, the game that I covered before I covered the Sixers was probably a class D girls volleyball match in upstate New York. And then like three months later, I'm covering the Sixers. So one of the most high profile teams in NBA history. Yeah. Yes. And, and I didn't, there wasn't, there wasn't a handbook that anyone gave me. No one explained to me how to cover an NBA team, how to source anything, what the, what the rules were. So I don't know any of the rules. The first game I cover with Mo Cheeks, he does his pregame availability. And I had been in the locker room because locker rooms are open 90 minutes before, at least that's when they were then. And they have all that stuff on the whiteboard. Yep. And all of their game plan is on the whiteboard. And you know what all this means. You like, this is I know what it all means. But what I don't know is that I'm not supposed to talk about what's on the whiteboard outside of the locker room. Sorry, officer. I I didn't know I couldn't do that. This is amazing. The Miami Heat would cover it up. Like they would put a tarp over the whiteboard in their home locker room in Miami. And I was like, what is this, a state secret? Like I can't (laughs) write about what the starting lineup is going to be. And they get so idiosyncratic about this. Like NBA teams, like they will not reveal who's starting in the game tonight because as if it's going to give 0.001% edge to the opponent, they will not do it. So like they don't trust us journalists to – to not divulge the secrets of that whiteboard, even though every coach, every team, every player knows the other team's plays. But you're walking in there not knowing this unwritten rule of journalism is that the, this is a state secret. Not at all. And maybe I should have used common sense, but I thought I was using common sense because nothing on the whiteboard seemed that interesting. I had, I had played college basketball and the whiteboard always said, 100% hustle, chase down every loose ball. Yeah hit the offensive boards and like the Sixers whiteboard wasn't that different from that. And so my first question ever covering the Sixers first game to Mo Cheeks was basically, you know, so it looks like your priority against the Celtics tonight is to pound the offensive boards. So it's something innocuous, but it had come from the whiteboard and I was 27 and I, scared still. And the response he gave me, I mean, I will never make that mistake again. Uh, and I, I, mean, I never have, but 
the amount of naivete and complete green I was shocks me now that they threw me into an NBA beat. I mean, yes and no. I mean, it's on the whiteboard. I mean, your job is to report what you see, what you hear. And <laughs> the I game thought. tonight is, hey, you're playing the Celtics, which are a great rebounding team. You got to pound the boards tonight, uh, like you said on the whiteboard. It doesn't seem like a very controversial thing to, it's not like you were revealing like an injury or something that you weren't supposed to talk about. Right. That's what I thought. And, and, and I, to this what did day, he uh, say? So what did Mo, he did basically he like, looked at me for, you know, and there's like, it's the local crew, you know, it's, it's six of us, but they're the inquirer who, at this point. Yeah. I'm at the inquirer and it's D lineup who has, who had been the sideline reporter for, 17 years you know and, and her dad was like a legendary coach so these are all people who know the protocol i asked that question i referenced the whiteboard and it's like a funeral it's just silence for and mo cheeks looking right at me and this may not seem scary to to me now but at the time he just looked right at me for a very long time and said don't ever again reference anything that's on my whiteboard outside of the locker room. And at the time it was, you know, my sample size was so low. This was, it was a sample size of one at that time. Oh my God. That I was, I mean, I was shaken. Like teeth chattering, shaking. But I, I mean, I, I pulled myself back up and like I, I figured it out along the way, but um, the, the imposter syndrome is real. Most people do not know what they're doing. And in that case, I actually did not know what I was doing. So did you ever feel as a female reporter covering the NBA that you had to overstate your credibility of like, I played professional basketball in every conversation you made? Did you feel like they were looking at you that you were not qualified to do your job or to cover the NBA? I felt that having played college and professional basketball felt like a necessity for everyone to understand. I tried my best to thread the needle between maybe leaning on other people at the Inquirer to make that clear to the Sixers and the staff without me having to be that person who went to Harvard and is talking about Harvard every time they, they can. So I didn't want to be that person. And this is kind of the dance. I think, I don't think just women, I think a lot of people play is like, I didn't want to be bragging about my playing career because I was, you know, a glory days person. I wanted people to know because I thought that I needed it just to get to the starting line, just to be treated evenly. Which is asinine to me. Is like, I am not more, uh, me asking LeBron James a question or Joel Anthony a question or Eric Dampier a question. I never once thought I have to prove to them that I know what I'm talking about here, or I have to prove that I played high school basketball, right? Because I'm privileged in that sense that never run through runs through my head that when LeBron looks at me, he's thinking unqualified or anything like that. At the time, I think we were, it was definitely pre pre players tribune, but we were starting to reach that point where I think a lot of NBA athletes and Andre Iguodala would talk to me about this a lot. They had more respect and they would make it very clear that they had more respect for people who they thought had put in similar time in the game. And you, we see this place now, we, we see this place where we're at now in sports media, where 
they want to do podcasts a lot of times with other players because there's that similar experience and language. And so I definitely felt not just because I was a woman, but also I felt that I had played the game not at the level of the NBA because I didn't even play in the WBA by that comparison, but I had put the same amount of time into the game that they had put into the game. And I thought that they would treat me with a level of insight and respect because of that. And I, and I wanted to trade on that to some extent, because why wouldn't you, if, you know, if you had played professionally, like you'd want to trade on that because it's like you, you earn that you put those 10,000 hours in. So you want to be able to capitalize on like the respect that gets you. Is it crazy to you to see that Andre Iguodala is still in the NBA? Like, have you followed his career and thought like, oh, like that feels like a century ago when I was covering the Sixers? I think about, I actually do think about Andre Iguodala a lot because I think the evolution of his career was not one that, not just me, I don't think him, I don't think anyone could have seen where it went from where it was going to go from Philadelphia. I mean, obviously, like, tell people no one, what Andre Godala was like in 2007. When you got on the 76ers beat, what was his, 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 wasn't his brand or his reputation was he's not AI? Like, he's not, he's not Allen Iverson. So, yeah. I mean, I, one of the first things, this was pre my uh, debacle with Mo Cheeks because Andre Igadala got re signed to, at the time, it was big money. It was like $58 million extension with the Sixers. And I I remember the press conference for that announcement and I was just starting to get my bearings and it was clear that the conversation in Philadelphia from day one was Andre Iguodala's not an A1. He's, He's just not your first option. And of course that direct comparison was like, they were, you know, Philly coming off of AI, Allen Iverson as being a legitimate number one. And, and Andre, who I always thought was exceptional in so many ways, and I'm speaking on and off the court, but the, the career trajectory, the reason I never saw it and the reason it's astounded me in a good way is because of the maturity that I've seen from him. Because from the beginning, from that like $58 million re-signing, I think he was living under this pressure that he had to be a number one option for a team. Talk about imposter syndrome. Is that like, oh my gosh, like trying to fill Allen Iverson's shoes, but also understanding that I, my gifts as a basketball player are very different than him. And the whole, the fact that his, his initials are AI, you know, like it's, it just feels like, man, that is not, that is not a a replacement that I would want to be is replacing Allen Iverson in the hearts of Sixers fans. One more thing about Iguodala was that, The thing was who they made him try to be in Philly was the worst person for him to try to be in Philly. But the person he became in Golden State would have been, if he could have been that person in Philadelphia, he would have been beloved. Like that's the guy that Philly would have put up statues for. So it was, oh, I always felt like he was for a long time in the wrong place at the wrong time. And now I'm turning this into an Andre Iguodala podcast, but. Oh, I love Andre Iguodala. Like he, I, re- I wrote last year or two, was it two years ago, two years ago that he should be in the Hall of Fame as like one of the best am- amplifiers in NBA history. Amplifies everything that you do on a basketball court. Just does it like makes everything 25% better. 
I still, to this day, I was thinking about this yesterday, you know, cause whenever you're around like Lebertard crew, you're always thinking like, what fun idea could I introduce? And then everyone has to rip off of it. And I was thinking, what's the greatest, like just everyday NBA moment I've seen in the last 10 years. And it is absolutely Andre Iguodala's behind the back pass from the corner three point line to David Lee. Holy, what a pass. That is an unbelievable pass. That pass, I I will watch it once a month (laughs) because I don't understand how it happened. So I really, I feel like now I could do a spinoff Iguodala podcast actually. He's so surreal. I remember the first time I had a conversation with him was he was on the 76ers and it was at the heat uh, when I was covering the heat and he would like, he would challenge reporters in ways that I don't think many people were doing at the time is like actually like checking your premise of your question. And he's one of the few athletes that you better go in knowing that he's going to, uh, he's going to go into it like a, um, almost like a proceeding. Like he's, he's not there to just give the boilerplate questions. Like he very much wants to understand what you're saying and check you on it, on your premises. And it, it makes you a better reporter is the more Iguodala's that you interact with, it makes you more thoughtful in the questions that you bring. Cause he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't play those games. You can see it. I remember, I remember thinking this frequently during cover covering the Sixers is this actually kind of comes full circle in that as someone who had played basketball full-time for like 10 years of my life, I very consciously didn't want people to see me just as a basketball player. And I remember noticing that in Andre right from those Philly days. He very much wanted to be seen as a a great basketball player, but more than that. He wanted to be seen at, like, I remember having conversations with him about what books he was reading and you could get him to talk about those things so much more easily because it was reflecting this larger person of who he was. And I think you've seen that play out over his career with, especially when he got to Golden State and he was able to be AI, the investor. And then he writes a book about his life. And it was interesting to see that you could see when he was really young, you know, cause he, at the time he's like 26 and you could see he wants to be this person who is not defined by basketball. And I think he actually became a person who I think a lot of people, we think about how Austin, like the amplifier he is, but I think we also think about him as changing the game a little bit in terms of like the connection to Silicon Valley and then the book he wrote and how he wanted to be about more than that. And I always really respected him for that. 100%. And I feel like if if he was just a little bit earlier and he was able to play with Allen Iverson in his peak powers of understanding who he was on the court and what he needed to be and didn't have to worry about filling his shoes or scoring 20 points a game, like he would very much fit in with that 2001 team. Yeah, I mean, that would have... It would have been... One thing, I don't regret it because it wasn't in my control, but the years I covered the Sixers they were just so mired in mediocrity and bad luck. And I do, it would, it would be so nice to cover a Philly team because I love that city and to cover a Philly team that was like a legitimate NBA contender. That was just an energy I never quite got to feel. It was always half the crowd wanted them to win and half the crowd wanted them to lose so that they could get a better draft pick. You never had the city united during those years about what they really wanted. Were you covering the team in 2010 when AI came back? I was. 
Yes. What, what was that like? That, that was one of the most, like the biggest mind fuck ever. Because the thing with Alan Iverson that I didn't quite understand and having been in Philly, and of course he was the shadow over those teams in 2008, 2009, but I'd never covered him. I'd never interacted with him. And then when he came back, I thought I would have one reaction to him, which was skeptical. And, you know, a, a lot of the stories you've heard about Allen Iverson, you'd be wary. And I thought I would be that person by default. But the first time we ever got to sit down with him, I just, he completely won me over. And it was hard to deal with because in those moments, you would say, this is a guy who is like 100% committed to this moment. And everything he's saying right now about being fully present and being here and wanting this opportunity, like I'm feeling with my whole heart and soul. And then the next day, the very first game, he would be late to the arena, <laughs> you know? And no. like, yeah. And you... Yeah. So it, it almost felt like an abusive relationship in that way, in that you wanted, and I still feel this way about him, you so deeply want to love him and you feel in the moment that he means everything he's saying. And so it became very confusing in that regard because there's so many athletes where you hear what they're saying and you're like, bullshit, 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 bullshit. But it's not like that with AI. I was 100, every time he would, he'd miss something and then he'd tell you why and you'd believe him again and then he'd miss something and he'd tell you why and you'd believe him again and you'd be in that cycle for months. And he had just come back and it felt like this kind of, not a Greek tragedy is that like injuries and he just wasn't the same played in age well, gracefully into his thirties and the game had gotten away from him, but he was coming back for this like swan song with the Sixers. Do you feel like that was a successful return? Um, do you feel like that was worth it? Because LeBron, I feel like has spoiled us is the coming home thing is like, we think like coming home is a good thing is like, it's going to work out. But so many times, whether it's Derrick Rose going back to Chicago or whether it's Joe Noah going back to New York or Dwayne Wade going back to Chicago, like I just, I don't think, or Dwight Howard going to Atlanta, like yeah. going back to where the glory days were in Philly is as storybook as it seems. And that's one of the hardest things to grasp as a fan is like rooting for this kind of fairy tale ending for Allen Iverson and then seeing kind of that Sixers team just was, was a shell. Ultimately, I didn't think that that was a successful move slash moment for either Philadelphia or for Allen. I don't, I don't think anyone, and not that, not that at the time you expect people to take the long view, because there was no chance for Allen Iverson, given where he was physically then, to do anything for the Sixers. And at that point, I was, I remember always wondering what the long-term goal was for bringing him back. Me, I mean, for Allen, it was like, he got a million dollars. I remember it being like, look, we're going to sign you for the rest of the year. And, and, he, and he needed the money. So it makes sense to me why it happened. But from a city perspective and from 
a perspective of wondering if it actually filled anyone's hearts the way I think people thought mm. it might. It mm. never did that. There was one shining moment when he made his home return and I finally got a glimpse of what Philadelphia can feel like when it goes full Philly. And I remember, because I'm not, I wasn't from Philly, I remember being in that arena when his home return came. And maybe that moment was worth it, that, that blip. But it, it fell so quickly off the abyss. And I think he didn't even play for most of the season. He had, I think he had kids, his kids were having issues. So yeah, the, the Allen Iverson, when people ask me about Allen Iverson, I have such confusing emotions because he gave me, he gave everyone in Philly some of like those greatest moments, but it was, it's, it was just met with like this constant question of like, what if, because there was always the question of like, what if they had gotten this player? What if this had happened? Like there, it never really came full circle and like have the Philly moment that I thought Philly deserved. Was there an Allen Iverson story that you always think about? Is like covering that team that like Allen Iverson was either larger than life or that like the quirky Allen Iverson that just always stays with you? The story I always think of, and it wasn't something I saw Allen do on that return, but it was when we were getting ready for his return, meaning we being like the reporters. And so we're talking to everyone in the Sixers organization who was around Allen when he was actually a Sixer during the prime of his career. And we're like plying them for stories about Allen. And I think it was Tony DeLillo. No, it might, well, it doesn't matter who it was. It was one of the Sixers guys was telling us this story about how in the heyday of Allen's time with the Sixers, they would do a mile run you know, that sounds kind of archaic to me now. It sounds like, yeah. like 1970s. I, I had to do a mile run back in high school for bat, for practice, but that, that seems like something the NBA team probably should be getting past. Right. Maybe this is something they were still doing in the 90s, which is when this was. And they would talk about how Allen wasn't working out during the offseason, but the perseverance and grit that he possessed and just the sheer athleticism that he possessed. So he wouldn't have run all summer. And then he would run a mile and, you know, maybe this is like lore now that's been exaggerated through the years, but they were like, he could run, he could run a 450 mile just out of sheer grit. Just waking up one day and like, I'm going to run a sub five mile. Pure <laughs> athleticism and pure grit. And I don't, I mean, that's a physical feat that I don't think a lot of athletes, one can accomplish or two have the mental grit in the moment to even want to gut out. But that was very much like, representative of, I think, who Allen was during those years. So I know you're not covering the NBA now um, with as much uh, attention as, as you used to as, as a beat writer for, for the 76ers. But those are, you mentioned that we're mediocrity and I'm listening to LeBron James get all sanctimonious about the play in tournament and how like, there's this like sacred, you don't like you earn what you earn. Like you shouldn't, if you, if you have a better record as a seven, eight seed or a seven or eight seed, you should punch your ticket in the playoffs. And that, that shouldn't be taken away from you from a play in tournament. And I'm sitting here like, do you remember the six years pre process? Like what's. What's so magical about getting like getting ousted in the first round? Like, why is that the bar? Like, seven, eight seeds in the NBA almost never 
never advance. They make the playoffs. They have a couple home games that maybe they can add to their coffers, right? Financially. But like, if the bar is that we're, we're, we're like, say, there's something sacred about making the playoffs as a seven, eight seed in the NBA. Just go to Kate Fagan. She'll explain to you how magical those teams were. Like they're 40 and 42 and they make the playoffs, get blown out by whatever it is, the, the Pistons or the, the Heat. Like, and then they're forgettable. That was something I wrote dozens of columns about was that, I mean, and, and I think any NBA writer who was dealing with a seven or eight, nine, 10 finishing NBA team, this was the thing that you were writing every third day was this question of what the point was of your team in that moment. And for the, the team that they had put together and the goals that they were striving for, there was no purpose to their existence at all. And the way the NBA, you know, before the, the, the play-in game, the way it was structured, there was also no, like you said, the NBA has always existed in a place where it's like, if you're going to do a seven game series with these two teams or a five game series, the better team is going to win how, you know, whatever the numbers are, you probably know them better than me. I know we have the occasional upset, but like the better team is almost always going to win. And that is not, that is not interesting. And it wasn't interesting in terms of covering the Sixers. And I don't think it's interesting for the fan bases. And so the play in game to me makes perfect sense because why would you want to prolong? Why, why not just up the ante really quick? And get yourself out of there if you are a mediocre team. Like, just let's make this execution very simple and clean. And don't, I mean, as I just never thought, the, I, I always argued of like, there's, I mean, this isn't like a hot take or anything. There, there was no point to the Sixers teams during that time period. And the only reason that, not the only reason, but I always thought the main reason that the process even started was because of the Andrew Bynum trade. And what happened, and like it was like they were at this point of like pure implosion. And if that hadn't happened, I think they would have carried on to some degree in, in mediocrity. You know, maybe it may, you know, who knows what like this alternate universe I'm painting is, but like all of these teams need these moments where you get the Andrew Bynum thing, where you gave up all of your first round picks and then he's hurt. And like, it's like, you know what? Fuck it. We have to start from scratch. And the faster teams get to that, in my opinion, the better off they are. Explain the Bynum trade, like what that was like. And it looks like Dwight Howard is on the move, a deal that just really came about over the last couple of hours. Howard going to the Lakers uh, and Denver getting Andre Iguodala, Philadelphia getting Andrew Bynum. That's, those are really the big parts of this deal. The Magic airing a follow from Denver along with Al Harrington and his contract. So there are the pieces right now in this four-team deal, and there are some draft picks there as well. So you might even remember it better than me because I was like between the Sixers and ESPN at that time period, but I was still very much like had one eye on the Sixers because I just like I loved the whole drama of covering that team. But so Doug Collins was still there, and Andrew Bynum was brought on to be the big splashy move, the savior. This was going to like stake their claim as finally having a number one, because until that point, Andre Iguodala had been the closest to a number one right. that they'd had. And then they brought on Elton Brand to be the number one. How many first round picks did they send? They had Vooch too. They traded Vooch in that trade. They traded Vooch, Mo Harkless, 
and a first to Orlando. The names involved in this trade, and it's probably the worst trade ever in terms of like the trajectories of every organization in there because the Dwight Howard thing to LA was an absolute epic disaster. Like actually Iguodala to Denver, I mean, that was a success. So I guess it just was not the trade that everyone involved probably expected. It definitely gave Andre the first step toward a future that he is very happy he lived, Yeah, I would imagine. With George Carl and Ty Lawson and that team and just the the run and gun, uh, the, the nuggets and kind of, he found himself as this like, not just a super glue guy. And getting out of Philly. I mean, that was like, I think Andre needed to be out of Philly. But maybe that's something, you know, I haven't paid that much attention to the Sixers, but the Bynum deal to me was like the, tra- the trajectory altering trade for, for Philadelphia. So do you look back and, and wish you were covering a different team and a more successful team? Or do you think it was good? Like the, the yeah, this whole beat writing thing wasn't for me. I'm going to go try doing like a national thing. Like I, I got a taste of what the beat writer life was and, and I'm, I'm good. I think it was more the latter. I think it was the time I was picking up my rental car for like the third time in Milwaukee in January. And I just started to feel a little Groundhog Day about it. And I know there's been plenty of beat writers who, who like, you know, they've done it 30 years and they, they just obsess and they love the routine of it. And I just am not that person. I loved being a part of it. And I loved seeing how the NBA worked from the inside. I loved taking this game that I had uh, grown up with and seeing how my knowledge of it translated and could map onto the NBA game. And it mapped on pretty well. And that was really cool to see that knowing the game really well, you could use that knowledge, even if it was, you know, quote unquote, being played at the highest level possible. And I'd never been able, you know, women's side versus men's side. That part was amazing. Getting to like live and see the lifestyle was awesome. But I just am not a person who wants, so I'll get philosophical on this, but there's this, Yes. There's this kind of analogy we can make about like, there's two kinds of people in the world. There's sledgehammers, jackhammers, and then there's hummingbirds. And the jackhammer is someone who they love the repetition of things and they love the small improvements they can see over time. They just take value in repetition and how that allows them to fall into routine and they can measure themselves against that. Or there's a hummingbird who needs to fly from place to place and sample the the nectar, so to speak. And I think I'm definitely more of a hummingbird in that regard. I'm I just can't do something repetitive repetitively day after day. And there there are very few. Well, there's there's many jobs, but in our sports media job, like an NBA beat writer, perhaps second only to a baseball beat writer, is the epitome of a jackhammer. Like, you were just chipping away. Just yeah. Slow grind. And, and you often find yourself oh, writing the same things again and again and again, because you run out of like new creative ways to say, you know, an 11 point, you know, streak for the Sixers against Lula. So I'm definitely more of a hummingbird. That was my philosophical analogy for you. So I was very happy to learn that and then move on. Did you have your sneaker fetish, like your obsession over uh, shoes during that time? Or did you find that later? I found it after. Like most sneakerheads, I 
walked into a store one one day. It was probably 2012, like right after the Sixers coverage. And I saw the pair of sneakers that my dad, the first pair of sneakers that my dad had ever bought me to play in. And so I was maybe eight when he bought me this pair. And I remember when he bought me the pair, I would wake up in the middle of the night and look at them on the ground next to my bed and just be excited that they were there. And this happened for the better part of a week was that I would wake up in the middle of the night and just like, look at them as an eight year old. And so when I walked into this store and I saw that pair of sneakers on the wall, it just like sparked something in me, the deep nostalgia that I could wear these again and that I could live in that time for some small moment again was really the, like the seed of my obsession with sneakers and like the stories that they can tell. What's the number of Jordan ones that you have? Like what's the count now? It probably, cause Jordan one is definitely my silhouette. I always see you in those like on, on Instagram or like whenever you're on, on TV, like you've got your leg up and that's, that's your shoe of choice, right? That's right. They got my leg up. Whenever anyone asks me for a drip check, I'm very excited, but <laughs> my wife and I, cause she loves shoes but she loves shoes in like high heels or fashion scent, you know, more like, um, more like traditionally like a feminine fashion. And this thing will happen where she'll show me a pair of shoes that she wants. And they're like a, you know, a chunky black sandal. And a month ago she got a chunky black sandal in pearls. And now she wants a chunky black sandal with like some other white ornament. And I, and I will, she'll be like, what do you think of these? And I'll, and I'll say, you have a shoe just like it. And then she, she looks at me at you like, and she's like, you, kidding me? you have 21 Jordan ones with different <laughs> color silhouettes. So you can fuck right on off. <laughs> <laughs> so that answers your question that I think I probably have about 15 to 20 Jordan ones. Do you like uh, Sam Hinkie famously said that he has uh, decision fatigue. Like he thinks he's a believer and I, it's, it's Barack Obama believer yeah. of this as well. Yeah. It's just like, it slowly drains the energy out of your creativity or your life that like Steve jobs, Steve jobs has. Yeah. yeah. So he wore the same thing every day. That's what it was. Same thing every day. To, to, yeah. There's a meme. He's back. He's back. Zuckerberg, as Mays says, do you wake up in the morning and look at surveying your, your Jordan ones and just saying like, do I feel like, or in which colorway do I feel today? Or is it just totally dictated by your, your outfit, like matching? It's both. And I think that I don't like, I can understand why Barack Obama and Steve Jobs need to limit the creative output that they give to wardrobe. My goal in life is to never be so busy that my brain power can't be shared with my sneaker selection. Like if I'm ever that busy, I have failed completely in my life. Amid's back, by the way. He's he's sitting by he's sitting by a golden woolly mammoth. Is that correct? <laughs> Just a skeleton. <laughs> it's the finest woolly mammoth you can get for twelve million dollars, apparently. So <laughs> wait, Amin, is that really a twelve million dollar statue behind you? Oh yeah. It is a twelve million dollar gold plated woolly mammoth skeleton in cased in a glass cube that I think is not quite gold, but more of a uh, reflective surface tinged on the outside. It's, it's, it's quite remarkable. 
it's a little bit more remarkable when you figure out that it's $12 million. That's like the meme that goes around where it's like, tell me what city you're in without telling me what city you're in. This says Dubai, though. That's true. <laughs> That's what I would be. <laughs> you could say Dubai. <laughs> I guess in order, it'd be Dubai, Vegas, Miami, maybe. That sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Kate, I got, I got a question for you. When traveling, how do you transport your sneakers? Do you just shove them in, in your suitcase and make it work? I have seen the special sneaker suitcases that people buy. Mm-hmm. I'm not precious with my sneakers. Mm, okay. I will offend people regularly. I will wear them on sand. <gasps> yeah. I mean, it's crazy. I will do these things. I, I don't want to, but I will walk through rain. And if it's like a rainy night, like, what am I going to do? Not wear my pair of sneakers? No, like, they're sneakers. I'm just, I'm not that precious about them. But your collection isn't, it's not, you don't just have oh, these are a nice pair of ones in a nice colorway. Some of these are, I've seen your, you know, I've seen you wear them. These are collector items. Yes. Like, do you not, is there no element of, okay, let me make sure what the weather report is, what my expected activities today will be. All right, this is a day for this kind of shoe because I know I'm going to be avoiding danger as opposed to on a different day, maybe I get some of one of the lower end ones. You're right. I, I'm I wouldn't ignore the weather completely. Like I have a pair of parapodas that I won't wear if I know it's raining. Like I will look at the I will look at the weather report and make sure it's not raining. But I, I don't know this this thing always plays in my mind I don't, that I heard as a kid. I don't even know where it came from. About like it was like just a parable about a young girl who got roller skates and she never. She never wore them. And this is even before sneakerhead culture. And this isn't even a good parable, but it plays in my mind whenever I think about my sneakers. Is this young girl who got roller skates, loved them so much, she put them away and never wore them and wanted to wait for the special day. And you know where this is going. And then by the time that special day came around, they no longer fit her. Oh, thought she died. Yeah, I was going pretty dark. I wasn't going to go that serious. I was thinking very dark. She got hit by a car. No. She died in a tragic accident that could have been prevented had she been wearing roller sticks. She was run over by a woolly mammoth. It was very unfortunate. <laughs> but so, I mean, that's like it's a lame parable, but I actually think about it every time I'm like looking at what sneakers to wear. I'm like, I'm not going to be precious with these because like they bring me joy to wear them. I mean, my goal in life is to die with zero dollars in my bank account and having spent the last amount of it the night before. Like, I don't, like, what, what value is it to me to have a pair of Union Jordans in a box? How about this? How about this as a question, right? So do you, do your sneakers go through a rite of passage? So for me, for a lot of my sneakers, like when you first get them, they're new, they're crisp, wear them on special occasions. Then you start wearing them a little bit more often. And then now, at some point, they cross the threshold. They're no longer crisp and nice shoes, but they're just not that. So now they become my everyday shoe. And then because it's my everyday shoe, now it starts to get really worn. So then it becomes, I'll play basketball in these, you know, when I'm just messing around. Or, <laughs> or, or worse, these are my supermarket shoes. And then finally, these are, I'm going to be doing some out, outdoor work. Do, do your shoes have a life cycle like that? Oh. Don't act like you do outdoor work. Outdoor work? Yeah, Amin does not do that. That's next level. So let's call bullshit on Amin doing outdoor work. Let's just call <laughs> it what it is. Theoretically, it might end up there, but I'm just saying. 
they do go through something like that. They go through some journey like that. There's a life cycle. There is a life cycle. But I, I, the one thing I do try to do, I guess this, this is true, is that if I notice a pair is getting worn down a little too much, I won't wear them for a little while and I'll go to another pair so that all of them are on the same life journey. Hmm. Nice. The ones I wear, I probably, I probably have 50 and I wear 20 of them. And then there's some that I'm like, hmm, I don't wear that frequently. But the 20 that I wear all the time, I try to take them out and be nice to them and, and, and like wear them down at the same pace. So, but I mean, the guy who's at my Trader Joe's is a sneakerhead. So my shoes for the supermarket, I try to be always. Wow. He flipped it on you. Yeah. Yeah. If I'm going to Trader Joe's. It's showtime. I'm flexing a little bit because I want to impress my, my guy at the Trader Joe's. How much rejuvenation is going on? Oh, like me. You ever send them into the doctor? Have you ever tried to resole? Because I've, I've built a shoe from scratch. Like, so I have two pairs of Nikes that I've built um, from the ground up. Like I, I sewed them. I picked all of the materials. And the process of resole, like getting a sole for these shoes was so laborious that I'm not trying to like do renovation on any of my existing shoes. Like you have to pour, you have to pour like nail polish, uh, alcohol into the sole, let it sit and pry it off. It's just too much. Do people still like, I remember when I was a kid, I had like the Fila Carolina blue Jerry stack houses when I was a kid. And I would, I would clean them after every game I played. I would take this like almost like shaving cream foam and just scrub out any sort of the, the kinks into the shoe. Right. Do people still do that, like as adults with shoes, like wash their shoes after everywhere? After everywhere, no. I would say some people still do it like routinely, but not not as diligently as that. But the new thing that's come up now, and that's what you described, Kate, like this incredible process that I I too would never want to go down in my entire life. But now there are services that do this. Yeah, that you you take your shoes and they will do all that stuff. They'll they refurbish a shoe. Yeah. They refurbish shoes. They refurbish shoes and they make them look maybe not good as new, but a lot damn sure better, including repainting parts that have been scuffed. You know how sometimes like that's not a black mark because it's dirt. That's because the paint has been scratched away. So they'll they'll repaint it. They'll do all that stuff. And then it's like, oh, man, it's like lightly worn as opposed to the awful uh, condition they were in before. I've explored this, but I haven't actually done it. And I'm waiting to meet someone who's done it to kind of just gauge what's a good price, you know, how often, all those kind of things. I didn't know, Kate, if you had done it, but it sounds like you did it, you DIY'd it. The market is so crazy right now that if you even wanted, because I think part of refurbishing is getting a new soul, usually. I mean, there are cert certainly people you can send to that where they'll paint and they'll clean it, but usually you want a new soul. To even get a donor pair, is what you would call it. Like to get a donor pair of Jordan ones with the same, whatever the, the bottom bottom is. Cause it's, some of them have blue, that bottom round like rim of paint. Some are clear, some are gray, some are red. So you got to get a donor pair. You need a cadaver Jordan ones. Exactly. I have, I have bought donor pairs and you can almost never get a don't, even a, a pair that you just want the soles for. You can't even get at retail now. So for some people, if I wanted a gray bottom, I might have to pay $350 just to take the sole off of it. 
And I, that's just not, I just don't want to go down that path on them because I don't mind worn sneakers. I mean, I know there are some, you know, it's just a difference of opinion that some people want to be looking fresh and crisp all the time, but I don't need to be. I want mine to look worn and be worn. I'm always like dumbfounded by the idea that NBA players will wear a brand new pair of shoes every game because I, the, the wearing in period takes weeks for me because I have wide feet. So my feet always have blisters and I'm sorry, this is disgusting to think about. But like I had this like wearing in period with basketball shoes that was just awful. It was painful. And the idea of like getting a new pair of basketball shoes, it, it pains me to think about. Yeah. That's a little overblown. They don't play one a new one every every game. It's some like some players, some pl- some like players the new shoe, but like the most of them will wear them for like have a, a set that they rotate. So couple of three, four, five games, and then different shoe, whatever. The other thing is you got to understand they practice in those shoes, so they're breaking them in even on non game days. And then finally, orthotics, orthotics, orthotics. The shoe you wear, sir, even if it's the exact same model, is not the shoe that guy's wearing on the floor because he's got an orthotic in there. I mean, how many sneakers are, would you say, during the course of a season, like an NBA guy? Are you talking like they might have 10 that they're running through? Maybe like 20. Okay. Give or take, 20 to 25. Now, Tom's right. There's some guys who do the new shoe. Like, I think Gilbert Arenas did that one year. Not only did he go new shoe, he went new shoe, different brand. When his Adidas deal was up. It's insane because of what Tom just said. Like, if you're wearing brand new shoes, it's like a brand new basketball. Players hate brand new basketballs. You know when when teams will introduce the new balls for the year? In the summer. You give them to the summer league guys. You guys break them in. And then, you know, you guys, if if we're doing informals, and you do shooting drills or all that stuff, the young guys have to do it. Have to use it. The old guys get to use the nice broken in balls. And then we get to training camp and the same thing. The young guys have to have the, like, literally, I've, I've had Shaq throw a ball right back at me at full velocity. Like, I was just, like, throwing balls like that, and then it, whoosh, it just came right back at me. I moved out of it the last time. Said, Don't throw me that new shit. He's like, he, they want the nice broken-in one. So it's the same thing with sneakers. Like, a brand-new, brand-new, it's just no one really wants that. Yeah, I'm with you, Tom. Like, I, I, I've always thought of it as, like, a baseball glove. Like I, yes. I only wanted one pair of shoe for a season, but that's a completely different wear and tear level. But uh, Gilbert Arenas wearing a new one every day. He wore Dolce Gabbana's one game. <laughs> like different sneakers are, I mean, maybe they're, I mean, you would know this more just like being up to date on that part now, but it seems like the different shoe every night would affect your game at some point. If your feet are all blistered and hurting, like I can't imagine. Who was it? Was it uh, P.J. Tucker? I think he had a game earlier or last year where he tried to wear a pair of shoes and he literally couldn't. He took them off and changed them at halftime because it was just murder on his feet, man. Yeah. It happens way more often than fans know about. Is that Even LeBron. When we were covering – when he was in Miami, he would have – uh, he would have to sh- change out his shoes because they weren't fitting right or they were sliding. And I was like, if LeBron James has problems with his shoes, like everybody in the NBA has problems with their shoes. It's got to be. Like if he can't get it customized or to his liking, like everybody's got to have a problem. So, um, man, I feel like, uh, I feel like, I mean, you missed, you missed a bunch of stuff in here where we talked about the Sixers during uh, Kate, Kate's covering the team from 2008 to 2011. 
forgettable team, but not at all forgettable, man. Now, who could forget the exploits of this was right before was this Doug Collins? It was Mo Cheeks to Eddie Jordan. Let us not oh, forget yeah. Eddie Jordan. Tony DeLeo's yeah. came from like the the front office. From the front coach. office to coach, yeah. Yep. And then Doug Collins. Yeah, Doug Collins. Yep. That's we'll leave that there. <laughs> that's for another podcast, Kate. Yeah, Doug and I uh we're not friends. Yeah. The dirty secret though, Tom, is every beat writer's greatest educator is when you're covering a bad team. Because there's no Kate, correct me if I'm wrong, there's no shortage of things to talk about. No. And you also you have to decide how honest you want to be mm. with why they're not doing well who the fault is for why they're not doing well, as far as, as far as you can ascertain. And that is what the fans want. That's the cover. They want to understand the inner workings that have led their team to this moment, whether it's a player, you know, a player deficiency, uh, some sort of team dynamic, some front front office failure. Like if your team is terrible, that's the coverage they want. So that's when you have to decide what, what you're going to be. A, for me, it was when I had to decide who I was serving. And this is a tough one because you are serving and you have to make relationships with the guys. And to some degree, that is where your bread is getting buttered. But at the same time, you're writing for the fans and you want to be honest about what you're seeing. And so th- those bad Sixers teams, like when Eddie Jordan was there, I've really had a lot of decisions to make about how I, how honest I wanted to be about what I thought the problems were and what I thought the problems were, were not necessarily going to make me Eddie Jordan's best friend. (laughs) What was your favorite story you ever wrote on the Sixers? Well, I don't know if it was my favorite, but it was my most memorable was so these Sixers teams had Samuel D'Alembert on them. Haitian sensation. That's right. And those Sixers teams at this point were like, these, this might've been a year when they didn't make the playoffs. And I wrote a piece about Samuel D'Alembert. And I think maybe I was a little young at the time. I don't know that I would make this decision again, but I wrote a piece. Like At that time, everyone I was talking to was very clear. He was not completely committed to basketball. You know, he, he loved a lot of things other than it. And I don't know how fair I was because I was much younger then and I probably have a different perspective now, but I wrote a column expressing that a lot of what I'm saying that he, like after practice, he'd be just like jacking up three pointers. And it was a different NBA even 10 years ago. Like Samuel D'Alembert was not a stretch player, right? He wasn't trying to be a three-point shooter to spread the floor. And I wrote a piece just basically saying, like, why is this dude jacking up three-pointers? Like, he should maybe learn one post move. Kate, he's spacing the floor. He's not jacking up three-pointers. He's now spacing the floor. It's all about branding. Right, Right. that's right. It's just just the choice of words that I, I used. And I, the next day when I walked into practice, Samuel D'Alembert called me over and just lit, lit me up. And, and in retrospect, he might have been justified um, because, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I might split the difference on that. I do think that I was right in some ways, but I'm not sure that I was fair to him to write that at that time. But that was most memorable for me for obvious reasons, getting like lit up after practice by him. How'd you react real time? I just accepted it. 
And I just took it because I thought it was fair. Like I, I had written this piece and then I had stepped back into the practice facility and he was able to give his feedback to me. So I gave my feedback to him on what I thought he was doing as a player. And then he gave his feedback to me on how he thought I was as a journalist. And we kind of just got past it. At least in my mind, we got past it. So I just accepted it. I wasn't trying to combat him. I wasn't trying to tell him why I thought he was wrong for his opinion. I was just like, okay, all right. Yep. I got it. Finished uh, one for 12 from the three-point line in his NBA career. He made one three-pointer and it was a buzzer beater going into halftime in November of 2012. Down there for three. Oh, man. How about his first career triple? He was 0 for 10 coming into the game. So that's Sam Dowder. I, I feel I feel like you 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 can't split the difference. I think you were right. Score one for Kate. Thanks, Tom. And had he kept practicing, maybe he'd be better at it. But Kate basically blew up his spot. He he gave up. That's, that's right. Well, it's so funny the way the NBA has gone. You know the way the game is played now. Even over the last 10 years, I'm like, well, of course he was working on his threes. He wanted to be a part of this next revolution. But it didn't, it wasn't that. That's not what he was doing at the time, but. Okay, are you ready right now on the Haver Show to apologize to Samuel D'Alembert? <laughs> uh, I feel, honestly, that I would like to apologize to him. It was, I was 28 years old and probably there was some piece of it that I wanted to be the, the bold truth teller, you know? Hmm. I wanted to stake my claim as a beat writer who was going to tell it like it is. And in that way, I could see how he felt that it was a, a cheap shot. That's why I'm splitting the difference. You're telling Sam D'Alembert, just be who you are. <laughs> that's not who you are. And Sam D'Alembert is saying to you, Kate, that's not you. You're not the, you're not the hot take artist. You're not. The, <laughs> uh, that's funny. <laughs> You, and on that day, you guys both learned something about yourselves. <laughs> I have Samuel D'Alembert to thank for leading me to a better place. That's an amazing line. I'm so glad we got to that point in the pod. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, Sam D'Alembert. That's right. Kate, how can people read your book besides me getting a copy for Amin to cram for this show? The book comes out on May 18th. And I would obviously encourage people to buy it through a local bookstore, given the the times we're in now and how important it is to try to to buy through those places and keep them afloat so buy, find your local bookstore they're likely carrying it but if not you can always uh, get it on amazon and you, it's on audiobook uh you can find me on instagram and the twitters and i am promoting the shit out of it there so you can certainly find it there <laughs> what was that like doing the audiobook version. Have either of you guys ever like done an audio, read that? I've done voiceover work once in my life, like actual voiceover work for like a, maybe it was like a six minute long video, uh, UN video. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was the day I realized I never want to do voiceover work. Yeah. Because they make you do 7 billion takes. Yeah. And, and, and it's not even like, hey, no, you're not doing it right. It's, that was great. Can you do it again? Yeah, that was great. Do it one more time. And I'm just like, what's going on? So I can't imagine an entire book. They're a little more lenient in that they don't ask you to do tons of things over unless a word got muffled or they feel like your inflection was off. But I don't know if you felt this way doing the, like the, the voiceover work, but there's something incredibly suffocating about it because you have to really regulate your breathing 
And there are times when you, you were trying to get to the end of a sentence without taking a breath and there's no real way to do it. And you're kind of in, which was ironic considering I was reading a book about ALS that I often felt like I couldn't breathe during it, but it's a very, very like suffocating feeling that you can't breathe when you want to breathe. And that's actually, I feel like that's the hardest part of reading an audiobook. You're like Izzy Gutierrez when he's trying not to cough. <laughs> I've never seen him, but maybe. Oh my, Izzy, you haven't seen the clip of when he was on uh, Highly Questionable and he was trying to hold in the cough and his face turns purple and his eyes start to water because he didn't want to interrupt the show? No, I haven't seen this. His voice just goes, it, kind of, it clenches up. It clenches up. <laughs> it's amazing. Six hours of that. <laughs> Thank you so much for writing the the book. It is not just a book about ALS. It is not just a book about basketball. It is not just about a daughter's relationship with her her loving father. It is it is all of those things. And it is um, I feel like anyone uh, can pick up this book, whether they 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 love basketball or not. And just I think it's it's a, it's a lovely story. So thank you for writing it, especially for the ALS community. People read Tuesdays with Maury and and. Now you remind them that that is ALS. Like that book, Maury Schwartz, is about ALS and about Mitch Album's love for the professor who, who taught him all those life lessons. And in very much the same way is that this is the 21st century, or at least the, the 2020, 2021 version of that book. So thank you. Thank you so much for writing. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. Thanks to me. The mammoth is still there. Has he moved? No, but you know what's funny? Yesterday we were joking about like this is the perfect setting to for a heist, a heist movie. Mm -hmm. Like we're gonna steal the mammoth and we're gonna case it, or whatever. <laughs> and now today I'm looking at it and there's a crack in the glass. Ooh. Yeah, like there's a. It's like a massive crack. It's not even a little one. The heist has already begun. That's not even the mammoth. That's just a projection.